Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Pastor. Dr. Robin. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. We made it past April Fool's Day. We we did. We did. We made it past April Fool's Day. We made it past the past, um, you know, this, uh, the Holy Week. And uh, we both lived to tell about it. And we are uh, getting started in the spring. Gosh, spring is so pretty here right now. So pretty, so oh. pretty. But, but I don't, I don't know about you. Um, last week, I, I had to leave my monk quarters to <laughs> run a few errands. You did, and, and your, cloist, your cloistered, <laughs> yeah, my, my cloistered life, cloistered home. <laughs> yep. Um, and as you know, I, I um listen to MSNBC when I'm driving. Yes. And so. Um, last week was Holy Week in the Christian tradition, um, yes. Passover for um, the Jewish folks. Uh, I also believe that um, for Islam, I mean, it all sort of converged um, yes. at, around the same time. So um, last week, as we were in the Christian tradition of Holy Week and, you know, sort of stories of emancipation for the Jews um, – we, I was listening to MSNBC when I was running my errands and w- was getting snippets of the murder murder trial of Mr. George Floyd, and yes, it, you know, it was um, what a fucking nightmare, yeah, to like be situated in like this week of Holy Week, right, right. and also like. Just listening to the ongoing criminalization of Mr. Floyd and his community, I I just was like, you can't make this shit up. No, I know. Yeah, and I'm trying to be really careful to call it the murder trial of Derek Chauvin because he is the asshole that's on trial. Yes. Um, George Floyd is not on trial. Yes. And I, uh, I have corrected a few friends who have, you know, said, um, you know, the George Floyd trial. And I, I just, it makes me, it makes me itch a little because how pervasive of us once again to identify right. the trial related to the black man versus the trial related to his murderer who is a white privileged man. Right. Um, and a part of a law system that, you know, inherently uh, seeks to condemn and, and murder uh, people that look like George. Um, but yeah, you're right. That, that the dissonance, Yes. And the uh, serendipity of the two were really apparent last week. 
And I, I had said to you, I, I actually had to, I, I have normally not been a, um, well, I mean, you know, I'm a pastor in the United Methodist tradition, but because I have not been serving a church for the last few years, I have, uh, I have done kind of Holy Week light yeah. um, for the last few years, but this year it really um, just sat with me in a really heavy way. And I ended up having to disassociate from socials and disassociate from emails on Good Friday um, and really sit with all, the convergence of all of that. Yeah. Um, just death upon death upon um, sorrow upon pain. Um, I am heartened at the way that the um, the, the trial lawyers are, um, trying to make sure that folks know, uh, who George was as a human. Um, and then of course I'm not surprised at the way the defense attorneys are trying to thwart that, that narrative. So, yeah. Yeah. So just, you know, I had a lot of sadness and a lot of anger and a lot of frustration Mm -hmm. and, you know, just like another example of how these systems were not designed for anyone who is not cis white and male. And, and I'm like, when are we going to like fucking wake up to this reality? Yeah. You know, like, yeah, I just, I feel like I've been repeating myself for 20 years about this stuff. Yes. And, and like, what, like what gives, you know, at what point do we finally say, oh, hmm, yeah, there's something wrong here. You know, I was talking with a friend a few weeks ago uh, that I that doesn't live in my town, but that listens to our podcast on a regular basis, Uh-oh. and and she was uh, describing our podcast to another friend and said, you know, it, there's it's always a different topic every week, but every week they talk about white supremacy and racism, and the friend said, well. Like, that's got to be that that's got to get old. Like, why would they talk about the same thing every single week? And my friend said, Uh, well, because that's the fucking problem. (laughs) That's the that's the issue that we are up against in the world right now that is slapping us all in the face. And and I don't think that this person meant it in a kind of condemning way about the the topicality of, of our conversations, but um, just kind of made a statement of, of how, you know, how boring it must be to, you know, talk about, you know, black and brown violence every, every single week. And gosh, why would we do that? Well, that's why, <laughs> that's right. why we do right. it. <laughs> Which just Yeah. Like, I mean, oh. if, 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 I think that if we all collectively don't begin to sing the same refrain, that that supremacy culture will kill us all right if if we, if we don't join in that refrain i don't think that we'll get anywhere which is which is precisely why we are doing this very long series around standing in solidarity with our asian siblings yes yes i mean there is a pervasiveness that we have not talked about enough as it relates to um, the violence that 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 our AAPI friends are facing, especially now in a um, in kind of the the waning months of a, a pandemic that was inappropriately 
assigned and assumed to them for responsibility. And it's, yeah, it's important that we have this conversation and, and it's important that every fucking week we talk about white supremacy. So there y'all friends, like, guess what, guess what? We're going to do it again. So (laughs) let's, let's get to it. Let's get to it. We are really thrilled this week to um, welcome uh, Zara Bounce. Zara is a consultant, a strategist, a community organizer based in Nashville. Uh, Zara does the majority of her work at the intersection of racial justice and health which I think is going to present a really lovely conversation for us to have. It's a, it's a piece of this work that we haven't delved into much. And so I'm, I'm really thrilled that Sara is with us today and let's get started. Well, thank you all so much for having me today. I'm so excited. Thank you for being here. We're really thrilled. So we'd love to have you uh, introduce yourself to our listeners, let our folks know uh, where it is you find yourself in the work, um, how you landed at this, uh, the intersection of work that you're doing, um, and really just a, 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 a story around who you are and, and why it's important that we continue to have these conversations. Yeah, so... The work that I'm doing, where I'm at right now, I have a background in public health. So I um, got a master's in public health. And what really interested me about working in health and healthcare was the idea of helping people um, like at their root, you know, because I really believe that if you're not healthy and you don't feel like you can thrive, nothing, nothing happens, right? You just don't have the opportunity to do all the things that every person, every community wants to do. So for me, that's where it came from. Um, But when I got into my work in public health, I really realized that, wow, a lot of people, particular communities, have poorer health than others. And why is that? Like, where is this all coming from? Um, And as as I started to dig deeper, I was like, oh, (laughs) there are policies and practices. And then later on learned, oh, there are ideologies and beliefs and attitudes and just how our entire culture and structure is is shaped um, has created the outcomes that we see. And like, not just in health, but in every sector. And all sectors for me. And that's why I think I can work with lots of different organizations. Like I see the connection between arts and health. I see the connection between, you know, housing and health because all of these impact health. Um, They're all connected. And so the work I started to do was really delving deeper into health equity. So really trying to look at, um, you know, what are the things, what are the barriers, what are the opportunities for people to be as healthy as possible? What's preventing that from happening? And how do we create opportunities for everyone to be healthy, particular black and brown communities. Um, And so I started to work in that space. I worked a lot with health departments, worked within health departments, worked at um, an academic medical center in Nashville. Um, So did a lot of that kind of work. And as I was doing that work, particularly in Nashville, when I came to Nashville, um, I really started to see, actually the real root is racial injustice. (laughs) The real root is like white supremacy. And um, that was not language that I had really learned to use in grad school or anything um, and any of the work I had done. It really wasn't until I was out in the field and talking to people of like, oh, we are just really dealing with the symptoms. Um, and even when we're trying to deal with these big s- structures of like, you know, housing and health and all this sort of stuff, if we're not getting to like the root of what is creating the policies, what is the ideology around these policies that is perpetuating th- this harm, um, we're going to keep replicating it. And so 
that's what really led me down the road of really focusing and honing in on racial justice. Um, and so what I ended up doing is really taking like a leap of faith last year and leaving my full-time job. And I'd been doing some consulting on the side and I said, you know what, like, this is really where I want to devote my energy, um, is looking at how do I support work, um, and organizations, grassroots organizations and larger, larger ones, um, to say like, we want to do things differently. We want to change how we're operating. We want to, um, engage with the people that we're supposed to be serving in a deeper way, um, in ways that are anti-racist and like explicitly so. And for me, that's like where I, that's the work I want to do. Um, I've worked in places where it's a lot of convincing, like a lot of trying to say, this is why this is important. And I've really realized like, whoo, that takes up a lot of energy and mental capacity that I really would rather devote to doing the work. Um, that's work that I think other people are equipped to do and I'm just not there anymore. I want to do work alongside people and partner along with them. Um, and so that's where I'm at. And then, um, and then like with the work around, you know, anti-Asian, like finding an Asian community, I'm South Asian. My family is from Pakistan and, um, I grew up in a really close knit South Asian community in East Tennessee, um, and a Muslim community. And, um, but I didn't know other Asians really outside my little like bubble, um, where I was growing up, my childhood friends. When I left for grad school, when I left to go work in DC, when I went to Nashville, like I really was like, what does it mean to be Asian? Like I never even resonated with that term of being calling myself an Asian woman. I was like, I'm Pakistani, I'm South Asian, like that's who I am. I'm not Asian broadly. Cause what we think of when we think of Asian is East Asian often, right? Yeah. In America. Um I was like, that's not me. So I'm not part of that community. And it wasn't until I moved to Nashville and was moved, living on my own. And I was trying to find a community and realized, oh, like there are Asian people doing really cool work in Nashville um, that I resonate with. And there was this group in Nashville called the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum, really long name. Um, but it's a national organization. They have chapters across the country. And there was a chapter in Nashville. And it's Asian Pacific Islander American women who are like, really devoted to social justice and um, like reproductive health and like lots of these kind of big topics that I really resonated with. And it became a space for me to find and like believe in a community of Asian API women. Like I was like, Oh, this has never been a space I've resonated with. Um, So that really led me down really delving deeper into Asian and API um, organizing and working in that particular community and seeing myself as being part of that community. I love that. And, you know, I, I was able, I had the fortunate um, opportunity to meet you through the porch writing class. And, and as you know, like part of, you know, like my vocation, you know, is in this sort of long form writing and uh, the porch community has been a great place to discover the craft of writing outside of academia and in December, I got an email saying that they were accepting applications for an anti-racism um, workshop, a writing workshop for like six or seven or eight weeks. And I thought, well, I already write anti-racist, like, but it's always good to like invest in this work. And so... I made an application and, you know, self-identified as Latinx and said, yes, I would be willing to pay for some, but can't pay for all of it because, you know, pandemic life, you know? Yes. <laughs> yes. And as it turns out, there were scholarships for people to have access. So there was already this like 
equity built in to the process that was addressing the disparities, right? Um, and and of course, I saw that our good friend Michael McRae was uh, one of the small group leaders, and and then met Sarah because Sarah and Michael facilitated our small group, and um, you know, again, just sort of broadening the community that that we have access to as we try to connect the dots for people, and so. That's, you know, I'm really glad that we, um, Sarah had a chance to meet one another in that workshop, but then you and I, you know, scheduled a call to talk a little bit further and so that we could share a little bit more of our stories in preparation for this podcast series. And I, I was really struck, uh, by, you know, your admission of, I think, if I recall correctly, having a best friend who is Jewish, yeah, and you yourself who um, is Muslim, mm -hmm. uh, growing up in Knoxville in yeah. East Tennessee, yeah. where everything is like white and Baptist, and yes. <laughs> and that there was a lot of questions about like how, <laughs> what does yeah. that look like for <laughs> Activist Theology Project, and yeah, and. You know, the, you know, I sort of responded with our deep commitment to religious difference and the proliferation of difference um, as a way to combat supremacy culture, right? Yeah. And I'm just wondering if we could sort of venture into that lane a little bit, because I think one of the, I mean, we're just coming out of some high holy days for the sort of three major yeah. Abrahamic traditions, right? Um, you know, one of the problems I think that fuels white body supremacy is an inability to just to honor other people's experience, yeah. right? There, there's this need among white evangelicals for certainty, right? Mm. And, and for the need for converting away from anything that isn't Christian, right? Yes. Yeah. So I just feel curious about, could we talk a little bit around why it's important mm -hmm. um, in this series around standing in solidarity with our AAPI siblings? Yeah. Like why religious difference is part of that formula of solidarity? Yeah. I mean, I think, it's interconnected, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and I, and I think there's also lots of interesting conversations and nuances around colonialism and imperialism. You know, when we think about, I mean, there are a lot of AAPI people that are Christian, um, you know, and just thinking about how and why, right? Did that happen? Um, where, where did, how, why did people become Christian in those particular countries and or when they came to America like how did that happen why did that happen um I think that those are just a lot of questions we have to ask ourselves um around you know how can religion both be right uh obviously a great support and yeah. a um place of you know spiritual like salvation and um can hold you in a really beautiful way but also and as, as I'm sure you all know right like it can be a tool for imperialism and colonialism right and so 
I think about that. Um, but I also think about, right, the importance of recognizing that there is religious diversity among AAPI people. Right. Um, because, again, we're as diverse as any other community, um, as every other community anywhere. And so, um, right, even if I think about, like, there are AAPI people that are Buddhist, there are AAPI people that are Taoist, there are people that are Christian, there are people that are Muslim, Sikh, right. Hindu, right? Like, it's spectrum. And so when we, when we conflate, and this happens in so many communities, right, and so many special racial minorities in America, we conflate all people of this community are of this religion. And so we can talk to them in one particular way and we're going to engage with them in one particular way, but we know that it's not the case for any community. Um, But we do it so easily because it's like shorthand. Right. And um, I think that misses, that misses the nuance and complexity of every community. And then particularly the AAPI one, because it's like, you can't just go to one place and be like, we're going to go to the, the Buddhist temple and talk to all the AAPI people in our, in our city. This is not going to work. Like you've got to be more intentional um, and also just recognize like everyone, everyone has, every community is unique and we've got to actually like build real relationships and uh, not, I mean, it's even for me as someone who identifies as Asian, it's like, there's so much I don't know about people that are Asian, right? Like, right. and it's like, for me also being humble and, and being like, I don't know what that means. I don't understand that. Like I've never experienced that cultural tradition than another, maybe a Japanese friend would do. Like, I'm like, I've never done that before. Right. Um, but we have this shared belonging of saying we're Asian, but yet we don't know everything about each other, right? And so it's recognizing that too, um, even internally amongst ourselves as a group. And so it's it's important though. Um, if we don't call attention to that, then it just gets lost. Yeah. It gets lost. I love that you, uh, you know, named the the integration between, you know, both um, health and activism. And I know that in the work that you're doing, I have to think that over the last year, um, as the pandemic exposed uh, a, a layer of injustice and inequity that I think many of us always knew was there, Mm -hmm. but didn't have, wasn't amplified or didn't have a light shown on it. Like it, like it has recently. Um, And, and I'm, I'm curious how you are finding uh, both kind of the, the reaction and the, the, the reaction to and and this exposure um, in in the work that you're doing, but also uh, are there are there stories of redemption or of recognition that you think are bubbling up from uh, what we've come to know about uh, you know health inequity because of the pandemic? Um, maybe there aren't yet, uh, but I'm, I, I'd love to know some of your observations around what you've seen happen over the last year. And also, you know, are there any, are there any joyous spots in, uh, because of the way we've shown a light on, on what's happened? Yeah. Um, so it has been really eye opening, and I think you really touched on the fact that a lot of folks didn't see the inequities that already existed. I mean, these, nothing has, nothing is new, right? They've just been magnified. They've been um, exacerbated. They've just, they've 
magnified and been, you know, exploded really for people that have been historically harmed um, by right. these inequities, right? And so, so I think that has been one of the biggest shifts um, for people to see that um, and really clearly see that of like, oh, the folks that we knew, you know, a lot of people that are working in the space like already know. So people that are continuously marginalized um, or made invisible or um, left behind are even more so. And if, unless we're doing intentional effort. So I think about obviously AAPI people um, kind of being cast aside and like not really talked about. It's like, well, brought into the center of, you know, harm and hate and all this kind of stuff now. So we really see that in a really visual way. And I think, I think it's interesting because um, a lot of people are like, oh, I didn't know racism happened against Asian people. It's like, well, this has been happening. It's always been happening, but you just didn't see it, you know, but it's like really visible now. Um, but then I also think about other marginalized communities, like um, people that are homeless, right? We see like the impact of COVID on, on those communities. Um, and just what, what different cities do or don't do to support their, their, those populations. Um, and, and it's like, I think very stark, right? We see it's very starkly now of like, oh, there are very clear things we can do to support these communities and we don't do it. Um, and uh, I mean, and so I would say that my observation really is around just the people that are harmed. I mean, we see in, in Tennessee in particular, right? We saw, especially early on in the pandemic, the Latino, um, Latinx communities were disproportionately getting COVID. Um, like one third of all cases were um, in the Latinx community. And our right. population is like not at all at that level in the state. And it's like, what's going on here? You know, what is happening? And again, all of the barriers that we already knew about, like translation services, lack of resources, people, majority of folks that are working in like low paying jobs where they are always afraid of getting fired and they don't have sick leave, like all of these things compounding into the outcome that we see around who's getting COVID um, and then who's dying from COVID, right? And majority Black and African-American people. And again, disproportionately being impacted, not unique. <laughs> Every sort of health issue, we see that happening and playing out, but we see it very starkly. What I find hopeful is now, I think people are talking about it and they see it. I think it's very visible. I mean, I think it's to the point if you don't if you're not seeing it, you're actively like closing your eyes and um, like trying to just avoid the data and all the information, all the stories. And so I think people are seeing it. I think there are clear, there are attempts to rectify or prevent that harm from compounding. Um, I'm not saying it's perfect, but I think there are attempts. So I think about in Nashville, um, the city has been really trying to make an effort to go into um, the black community um, and other communities to give vaccines, right? They like want to be more equitable with the vaccine distribution, not just have it be majority um, white folks, which obviously makes the majority of the city. Um, so there are like intentional efforts that I think are being made, but, and I mean, I will say like the technology that we have, especially around health of like telemedicine, like that's always been an issue around access. Um, people that can't access telemedicine and can't physically then come into the doctor's office well, now COVID has made it so telemedicine is the thing to do. Um, so how do we create supports? How do we create, provide broadband access? How do we provide all these sort of services or like even literally giving people cell phones um, to get them to be able to talk to their doctor? And so those right. things are happening now. Um, but I wonder, and again, this is my cynical side coming out. I'm like, I hope this continues beyond just COVID. So like when people are vaccinated and things are going to quote unquote back, go back to normal, 
are we going to just say, all right, we, we did that. And now like we can just go back to what we used to do versus like actually seeing this as a way to shift and like a turning point for transformation and change um, and all of that. So I think there are, there are glimmers of things that have been good. Um, you know, people even like allowed to work from home and it's like, mm-hmm. Oh, we could have been doing this all along. <laughs> people right. that, um, you know, uh, don't have the ability to go into the office for whatever reason, um, for ability level or whatever. It's like, they could have just been working from home the entire time and that would have been fine. And then, and so seeing that as a possibility is, is great. But now it's again, that wonder of, I wonder of, you know, are we going back to normal? What does back to normal mean? Um, I think that's just my worry and, and question and already seeing that kind of starting to come out too. Right. Well, and we white folk are are really well known for, you know, uh, forgetting, yes. the, <laughs> forgetting what we have seen and experienced in a hope for a semblance of supremacy culture to resume yeah. uh, at the at the place that we felt it dropped off. <laughs> and you're right. I mean, I think all of us are are uh, unfortunately jaded in that way. And yet we all still also have this imagination for what we can and could be as a community and as a people. And I think it's, it's incumbent on us to infuse that imagination in enough folks that the backpedaling of supremacy culture uh, takes less of us down yeah. uh, in, in that imagination. Yeah, no, and I, I'll add, and I realize I didn't bring this up. I mean, I think, a great place where there's been beautiful change and um, not change, but just adding to and uplifting is grassroots efforts and like collective, um, collective community building, collective support, and like community care. So there are so many community collectives and like, there's one I I'm in from Knoxville. And so there's a uh, first aid collective Knoxville and they've collected so many materials, support resources, and they go out and distribute that stuff like all over the place. Um, and really like meeting people where they are, giving people money. Like they have a fund where they literally provide funding to people like every month. Um, and I know of so many supports that are like that. And I think those that have cropped up um, or have just been um, added to during this time um, are, are the places where I think like that's where I find hope <laughs> of like, no, we can we can take care of ourselves um, it would be nice if the government and institutions did that too, but we can do this. Um, we're taking care of ourselves and our and our own people, um, which is beautiful. I love that. We did a podcast episode earlier this year on mutual aid because we, you know, that kind of economic care is something that we need on like a global level, yeah. and 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 yet we live we live kind of collectively with this mentality of, well, it's a meritocracy and you got to work for what you can get. And, and that is just not working (laughs) anymore or hasn't ever worked, you know, it's worked for the people who had access and who could accumulate wealth. Um, And so, yeah, um, we've got a long ways to go, but poco a poco, as they say. Exactly. So I am. Uh, I'm also curious about uh, some of the kinds of um, work that you're doing within 
uh, corporate or not-for-profit mm. structures around medical about health access. Uh, you had mentioned at the beginning that there were that you know you rec- that you you began to recognize as you started your consultancy that um, there were organizations or corporations that wanted to do better or wanted to kind of find themselves in a space where um, it wasn't simply an evaluation of a yearly evaluation of their insurance policy. Uh, that's, I mean, every, every institute, every place I've ever worked. I mean, that's been the, that's been the way that companies have cared for you. Um, they review your insurance every month or every year. They see if they can get your rates lower. Um, if they can't get your rates lower, they apologize. If they can, they think they're rock stars. Uh, they might offer a gym membership because, you know, being healthy, uh, is, is more, um, you know, is, is better. The insurance rates well, are going to go down, down. Yeah. right? They, they may offer uh smoking prevention, you know, give you, give you the patch for free to catch you to right. quit smoking. I mean, it really is just this systemic yeah. oddity of how big business and, and quite frankly, I mean, middle, middle and small size businesses, I don't think it matters how big you are. There is an understanding of what health should look like and healthcare should look like as something that we, um, that we give away, that we are, you know, that we, that we share. Um, I'm curious how, uh, how you are finding that work, how you are finding the, um, not locating it, but how you are seeing it evolve and, and how uh, is there a, is there a mental, shift on behalf of some of these larger organizations about what health really means, that that health is a holistic approach. It isn't just about, you know, the health of your organs and your body. It isn't just about the health of your brain and your heart as it relates to mental health. It isn't just about the things that feel like checkboxes. Yeah. What is that? What is that looking like for you right now? Yeah, I think the the organizations that I've worked with, and I will say the ones that I've worked with for profit are a little tr- not trickier, but they're harder for me to find. I've worked so much in the nonprofit space, but there are a couple that I've worked with that are for profit, and and just when I look at the landscape too, they are shifting their idea of what health is. Um, it's not just about yeah, like you said, um, smoking cessation and here's a gym membership, but it really is about the full picture of who are the people. And I think that's what I've seen. It's like, it's really about who are the people that are coming into this organization? How are they bringing their full selves here? Um, or what is preventing them from being their full selves and their most like authentic mm. selves? So what does that support look like? How do we support that? And is it through, um, you know, resources? Is it through other services? Is it through building like cohorts of staff inside the organization? What does that look like to provide that support for employees to feel like that they're thriving, that they're as healthy as possible, that they feel like they're their best selves? And then also looking at what are the communities that are being served by that or that business, right? And so I've also seen organizations start to examine like, oh, we only ask our clients, you know, one question about like, pay, you know, satisfaction, but are we actually asking them, uh, what do you want? Like, what are you looking for? What is, what, how does the service add or detract from your life? Like, what are you actually wanting? What is your, what is your vision for your health, for your family, for your community? And so they're asking, they're trying to ask those different questions so that they can 
provide different kinds of services or shift their services in some sort of way. But I mean, I think businesses are tricky, right? I mean, I well, I say any organization is tricky. Yeah. I mean, even nonprofits because ultimately they're all there. Uh, I mean, especially for profit to make money, and so there is that element of like, yeah, ultimately you might be providing a service to people that to, to people that want to pay for it, and uh, that is always the inherent. For me, that's something I struggle with a lot. Um, even working as a consultant with organizations, it's like, am I I'm working for organizations that are benefiting from problems that exist in society so that we're all making money off of that, you know? And so that feels very, it's just like, it's very complicated, right? It's really sticky. And it's like, and ultimately, especially in healthcare and um, businesses in particular, it's like, unless we do a large, you know, um, reforming of what those systems look like, like from a national level, the little changes that they make, yes, that can be transformative, like doing living, like a living wage and paying people fairly and all that kind of stuff. But it's one kind of drop in the bucket um, in like the massive system that we exist in. So that's something I just, I grapple with a lot too, of like, what does it mean to try and change one organization? You know, what, what does that look like? Um, and how are people in that organization, are they being able to move forward um, in the work and uh, the way that they feel like they need to, especially when it's a business and it is about generating profits and revenue um, for stakeholders. So yeah, it's a, uh, it's a lot. <laughs> it's, it's complicated. Like we're all complicit in it. I'm like, ah, yeah. what do we do about this? You know, um, just last week, uh, not to like spill all my tea, uh, but <laughs> last week I left corporate banking and decided to go to the local bank here in Nashville. And I have banked with Chase Bank for a long time, for 20 plus years. And, you know, before they were this big conglomerate uh, that is now Chase Bank. And they asked me, this woman asked me, why, why was I closing my accounts? Why was I leaving? And I said, well, lots of reasons, but for one, Chase Bank held stimulus checks until March 17th and made billions off of poor and marginalized people. And I said, that was my final straw. And then I said, I know that you did not make that decision, but we are all complicit in these systems. And she just was speechless. You know, she didn't know what to say. And and you're right. Like, you know, I, I talk about this all the time and I mentioned it in my book. Like, even down to where we buy our groceries and our coffee, those decisions matter. Because because, because of how tangled the system is and how implicated we are in the acceleration of harm, even when we are trying to do good. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I 100% agree. And I think that's what's so hard about it. Because, like, unless you're a hermit... <laughs> And you're totally off the grid and you are just doing your own thing and you're making your own food. I mean, we, no matter who we are, we are complicit in some right. sort of way. I mean, I am, am, am pro union and all of that. And I buy stuff on Amazon. Right. Like I, uh, and you know, and it's like what it's so, it's so ingrained. It's so in our lives that to then make a different decision is really hard. And it, yeah. you know, I'm sure finding a local bank that is easily accessible and that you can call like at any hour of the night when you have an right. issue 
that's not going to happen. So there are right. trade-offs, but yeah, what does it mean to be ethical and how can we be ethical when everything is so intertangled too? It's, right. Right. Yeah. And I mean, the health and our, our health system and our economy are, are tangled and in bed together and, um, you know, in polyamorous relationships with, you know, capitalism and white supremacy. And I mean, I mean, it, it is a mess. So, you know, I'm one of the things that I, I do in the world is I have a, have a real heart for kind of the economics of small neighborhoods. Like, how do we regenerate or it kind of provide a neighborhood, um, kind of economic equity uh, footprint. And I say all that because one of the statistics that I have um, really been sitting with over the last few years is in the way that the dollar circulates through the community when you are uh, black or brown and the way the dollar circulates through the community when you are white. Um, you know, black and brown folks are, you know, working jobs where they're not being paid as much. Um, they have a lower wealth income. I mean, the gap for wealth income between, you know, black folks and, and brown folks and white folks is just exponentially sickening. But, you know, a, a black person gets paid on a Friday goes to the store that is most affordable for them, which is in many instances, a corporate um, footprint like Walmart, like Dollar General, uh, Family Dollar, uh, a local grocery store or a, a, a corporate grocery store. Um, the dollar that they are paid leaves the community on average within a day and a half of, the, of when they spend it. White folks, however, spend a dollar and because they have the capacity to go to their local coffee shop or buy from their local lumber yard or, um, you know, not feel as if they have to go to, uh, um, you know, a, a chain restaurant where food prices have been worked down to the lowest common denominator and they're able to spend a little more at a local place, the dollar for white folks stays in the community up to 10 days. And I mean, just thinking about how, and, and it's very similar for healthcare. Um, I mean, healthcare healthcare dollars are are not that dissimilar, simply because of urgency and you know a capacity for um, who you are and what kind of um, you know what kind of system you have been conscripted in to to benefit you. Um, it it's just it's just remarkable how inequitable every single thing that we're doing is and and it is it is so invisible just as you have said i mean you know this the the visibility to health and wellness is such an an un uh unseen need for so many um and I, I was really struck by, I love the fact that you mentioned that there are some organizations that are looking, not just looking internally to how health and wellness affects those that are, those that are working for them, but also how they are looking externally to yeah. um, ask important questions of their, their constituencies right. and, and that matter that, that we should have been asking for generations and we yeah. have ignored yeah, and I think it's yes, all, all all of that. And I do think I mean some of the things like the questions that are being asked, right? It's like, yeah, they should have been asked a long time ago. And we always have known 
the connection between if you have a barrier to getting a ride to come to your doctor or to your the business or the place you need to go get your medicine, well, of course your health is going to be impacted. Like, of right. course it's a ripple effect, but we've never asked, like, We've not systematically asked those questions. And I know that there are organizations and like hospitals and other um, health centers that are asking questions around called the social determinants of health and like really looking at an assessment of, you know, what is like, what does your transportation look like? Like, what does your housing look like? What is your, um, you know, academic, if are you going to school? What, what is that? You know, what's your childcare situation look like? Asking patients those questions so that when they're coming in to see their doctor or whoever, there's a larger image of who this human being is and what are they dealing with and it, it often and again like there's that balance of like is it um are we looking at a deficit model are we looking at an asset model like you know but really looking at the full picture of the human that's coming in and saying okay well how do knowing all of this about you and what you're dealing with how do i now support you in your health and recognize that all these other factors are connected to your health um and I think the, the issue sometimes gets to, right, how do we, if we're asking all this information, what are we going to do with it? And I think there's also a responsibility of how do we be ethical about that, of like, are we just collecting data just to collect data? Um, or right. can we actually do something about helping someone with their housing, if like that's this question we're asking, or helping them with their transportation? Um, or are we just like, oh, I see that you don't have a car and you wait for the bus. Okay, well, uh, okay, that, that doesn't affect me in any way as I talk to you about your health issue. Like, how is it being used? And I think that's like the next layer. Like we're overcollecting the data now. And now what are we doing with, who, are we collaborating with other community organizations and grassroots partners and other institutions to support the people that are coming into our clinic or our patients or our clients? Um, so I think that's like a next layer. Um, but I think the fact that those questions are being asked now and like hopefully a yeah. more systematic way is is a good first, is a good step. But yeah, yeah it's like what's happening next? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I um, I feel excited about just knowing you and the work that you're doing, and I think that, um, you know, like I've been saying this for a long time, we're better together, and 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 it does take a village, and and when we actually embody that sort of collective mentality, that is when we will get somewhere, and. Yeah. You know, th- this this work is a lot about connecting the dots for people and, and getting people out of a charity model and into a solidarity model. And, and unfortunately, because of the ways that many of us have been socialized, we've not been socialized into a collective mindset. We've, we've only been socialized into take care of ourselves and wh- whoever's under our roof. And that's just not sustaining uh, us anymore. And so I'm excited that you came on to share with us your story and your work. And I hope folks will follow your work and get in touch as they, as they need and and want to, because I I think that, I think that you are able to provide a lot of help for folks as folks are trying to just think about, things from an equitable lens which which we all need to be doing right now so i'm just glad that you're here and really grateful thank you all so much this has been so great and i agree i think we've got to just work collectively otherwise and also remembering white supremacy has made it so that we feel like we can't um that we need to be on our own and so 
actively trying to get against that, do work against that is, is anti-racist, you know, we're right. trying our best to right. work against those systems. Yeah. yeah. Well, I would love if you would share with our listeners how they can reach out to you, how they can be in touch, how they can follow you on Twitter, what, whatever modes of communication you prefer. Um, I know that I'm sure that there are folks who are going to want to stay connected with you and, and learn a little bit more about the work you're doing. What's the best way for folks to find you? Yeah. So I have a website, um, sarahbounce.com. So S-A-R-A-H, bounce, B-O-U-N-S-E.com. And then I'm on Instagram um, at sbounce, S-B-O-U-N-S-E. Um, and you can also email me at consulting at sarahbounce.com. So I would love to talk to folks. Please get in touch. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, really. It's been a joy to chat with you. And I really appreciate the fact that we have been able to kind of broaden this conversation, Robin, into um, one that not just focuses on the uh, ways that our Asian kin are are being harmed, but also to look at the uh, the right. health and wellness of us as as a communal right. people. Um, it's really been a lovely conversation. Um, um. Um, so friends, we will be back again next week. Uh, next week, we'll actually be finishing up our series on uh, standing in solidarity with our uh, Asian kin. And don't forget, if you'd like to follow us, you can do so at Activist Theology. Don't forget that activist and theology share a T. And we will be around. Uh, tweet at us. DM us. Let us know what it is you want to know and, and how it is you want us to get there. Because Dr. Robin and I love your feedback and we love being in communication and solidarity with you, IRL. So, Dr. Robin, we're going to get our hands dirty. We're going to look at how we do this work in a more holistic and healthy way. Um, and we're going to celebrate spring. And, and we're going to be IRL very soon. Oh, I know. Yeah. I know. And, I know. And we'll talk even, about it more. <laughs> we're we're um, even talking about recording IRL. We are. We are. So, so yeah. Anyways. We're a little yeah. giddy about it. We'll talk about it more later. Yeah. Very excited. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, always the challenge and the directive is to get free. And yes. we got to do that together. And so let's get on it. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, activist and theology share a T. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. <laughs>